One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, this is A History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. This is the third and final part on the Siege of Vienna of 1683. On the 3rd of November 1676, the Grand Vizier of the Ottoman Empire, Fazil Ahmed Pasha, was on his way from Istanbul to the city of Edirne, historically known as Edirnopol, when he died unexpectedly at the age of just 41. It is recorded from too heavy drinking. It was an unfortunate end for an otherwise well-respected statesman who, like his father before him, had skillfully led the Ottoman government and brought about much-needed stability to the regime. It was generally assumed that Ahmed would be succeeded by his brother Mustafa Zadeh, but instead Sultan Mehmet IV chose Ahmed's brother-in-law named Kara Mustafa. Born near the town of Mezifon, south of the Black Sea, Kara Mustafa had been adopted by the future Grand Vizier Kapur Mehmed in his teens. He quickly became an intimate member of the clan, marrying one of Kapur's daughters. He became especially close friends with Fazil Ahmed, but unlike his half-brother, refused to touch alcohol in any form. Physically, he was tall and powerfully built, with a thick black beard and dark features. While the rest of the Kupuru family were from Albania, Kara Mustafa was pure Anatolian. As an admiral in the Aegean fleet, he fought in the campaign against Crete and became renowned for his courage. And he appeared to have a genuine contempt for Europeans and non-Muslims in general. His first foreign intervention as Grand Vizier was in Right Bank, Ukraine, where he wanted to tighten Ottoman control and fend off encroachments from Muscovy. The two countries fought until 1681, when a treaty was signed in Crimea. This first formal treaty between Muscovy and the Ottomans promised 20 years of peace and recognised Ottoman suzerainty of Right Bank, Ukraine. Meanwhile, to the west, the Ottomans had been at peace with the Habsburgs since the Treaty of Vazvar in 1664. The frontier region of Hungary was divided into two halves, one controlled from Constantinople and the other Royal Hungary from Vienna. Recently, there was significant unrest in Royal Hungary, especially after 1671, when Leopold replaced the constitutional government with the arbitrary rule. The local Protestants were particularly aggrieved as well by the heavy-handed attempts to force the Catholic faith upon them as part of the Counter-Reformation. 
a resistance movement known as the Kuric, carried out a series of attacks across imperial territory in Hungary. Raids continued each summer intermittently and with little coordination, that is, until 1678, when it started to receive financial support from the French. Louis XIV offered the Prince of Transylvania, Michael Apathy, an annual subsidy in return for lending support to the rebels. The main beneficiary turned out to be a young and talented commander of the Kurich, named Imre Thokolu, the son of a magnate family who introduced order into what had hitherto been an unruly mass. In the campaigns of 1678 and 1680, the movement became a serious uprising as rebel cavalry raided lands as far as Moravia and captured several fortresses and towns in upper or northeastern Hungary. Thokolu acquired international renown and an even greater number of followers among established families in royal Hungary. Emperor Leopold and his court in Vienna realised that to suppress the rebellion they needed to make concessions and so revised the draconian policies launched a decade earlier. The ruling group, the Gibernium, was disbanded, the new taxes abolished, the right to free worship of Protestants acknowledged, and the Hungarian Diet reformed. The courage, though invited, refused to attend the Diet. And in general, Leopold's concessions failed to calm the unrest. Thokolu looked to the Turks, who, having concluded peace with Russia, were preparing for war with Vienna. He was happy to accept from Constantinople the appointment of Prince of Upper Hungary. Emperor Leopold sent an envoy, Count Caprara, to Constantinople, eager to renew the Peace of Vazvar, which was due to expire in 1684. The Turks demanded the strategic fortress of Gyur, but knew really this would be unacceptable. Caprara realised that the Ottomans had already made their minds up to attack Austria, and the best he could do was to smuggle messages of warning back to Vienna. The Ottomans had a particular hatred of the Habsburgs as rival heirs to the emperors of ancient Rome. When Louis XIV of France promised he would not intervene to help Austria if attacked, Kara Mustafa made up his mind. With Royal Hungary in turmoil and Ottoman frontiers at peace, now was the perfect time to strike, without needing to wait for the formal peace to expire. Preparations for war were well underway by the autumn of 1682 for what would be one of the largest invasion forces launched by the Ottomans. Kara Mustafa used the winter months to assemble scattered Turkish units and to order the auxiliaries to meet the main army along the line of march. That winter was particularly harsh. Great flows of river moved down the Danube. The spring came, the snow turned to heavy rain, filling the streams and rivers, transforming the low ground into a mire. It became more difficult than usual for the Ottomans to pull their wagons and their cannon. Nevertheless, the main force left Edene on the 31st of March 1683, was able to reach Belgrade and camp there on the 3rd of May.
the Sultan decided to stay there in the comfort of his luxurious tent and to pass over official command of the campaign to Kara Mustafa to lead the troops further. The Ottoman encampment was impressively well-ordered, with large colourful tents made of cloth and silk. The imperial tents had an outer layer made of close-woven canvas, usually dyed red or light green, which kept out the rain or snow, and an inner layer of much finer cloth, often embroidered or decorated. The soldiers' tents were much smaller and less elaborate, but well-made and comfortable, often made of wool felt. The core of the Turkish force was the regular army of some 40,000 well-trained men. Various allies brought the total number up to nearly 100,000 soldiers in all. The Turkish heavy cavalry, called the Sipahis, were renowned for their skill with sword, mace or war axe, but the bow was their most devastating weapon. They were able to shoot at full gallop and fire arrows which could pierce plate armour. To complement them, the Turks also used thousands of irregular light cavalry, the Akonchu. Also working with the Ottomans was a large force of Tatar horsemen who roamed far and wide in Hungary, causing widespread devastation. Perhaps the most feared of the Ottoman troops were the Janissaries, who as well as effective fighters on open battle had developed specific skills for siege warfare. They were extraordinarily brave and committed when it came to the task of attacking over a broken wall or through a breach in fortifications. Carefully selected Janissaries were trained in the use of hand-thrown grenades, small bags of clay or glass spheres filled with gunpowder. These bombs looked much like pomegranates, in Spanish granata, or in French grenade, which gave them their name. A hail of Ottoman grenades could prove effective in blowing apart a defensive line. New weapons were likewise appearing in Western armies, especially an array of different firearms, pistols, muskets and carbines. Rudimentary bayonets also appeared as early as the 1640s. The former chief commander of the Habsburgs, Ramondo Montecuccoli, had recently died at the age of 71 and was replaced by Charles V, Duke of Lorraine. Charles's first major battle was St. Gothard in 1664, described last week. Then, when France occupied his duchy in 1670, he fought in the Imperial Army during the 1672-1678 Franco-Dutch War. The Treaty of Nambigan in 1679 confirmed his title as Duke of Lorraine, but France retained the territory. In 1683, Charles's prospect of regaining his duchy seemed increasingly remote. His military career had been solid, though not exceptional. He had the reputation as a courageous soldier who was able to inspire affection and trust in his men. Unlike the Ottoman leadership who expected their every command to be followed, Emperor Leopold had to work hard to cajole, persuade or bribe as necessary the various German princes and local rulers in his empire. Protestant states, in particular, were less inclined to assist the Catholic emperor. 
His Catholic allies were strongly encouraged by Pope Innocent XI, who never slackened in his commitment to pacify Christendom and launch an attack on the infidel Turks. Innocent was unable to persuade Louis XIV to provide military assistance, but at least convinced him not to attack Austria's western flank at the same time as the Turkish offensive. Across Western Europe, the consequences of an Ottoman victory in Vienna weighed heavily on the minds of princes and statesmen, aware that in past centuries, appeals for united action against the Turks had rarely been answered, and when attempted, were neither long-lasting or decisive. The nobility of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth were inclined to help, still smarting from the recent loss of the right bank and other territories to the Ottomans. Although there was no certainty they would provide help, they were motivated by the possibility of regaining their lost territories in the event of an Ottoman defeat. Their leader, Jan Sobieski, was also inspired by the idea of a crusade. In the beginning of the year 1683, it was still unclear whether Austria or Poland would be the target of a Turkish invasion, and they agreed a mutual defence pact in March. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Over the winter, Leopold's envoys worked hard to garner support, but at first with little success. Duke Max Emmanuel of Bavaria traditionally had close ties with France, but also felt obligations as a devout Catholic to defend the empire against infidels. He negotiated strongly, demanding large subsidies, but eventually came to an agreement in January to personally lead an army of 10,000 Bavarian soldiers. The same month, a burst of intensive diplomacy in Hanover paid off when Prince Ernest Augustus agreed assistance in return for a considerable payment. Leopold also managed to gain the support of the Elector of Saxony. John George III agreed to lead an army of 10,400 men in spite of strong opposition from the Estates of Saxony, not only because of the cost of the campaign, but also because they were not keen to support the Catholic Emperor. 
Still, by May, Colonel Mustafa had not confirmed that Vienna was the target for the offensive. The original plan was to take the strategic fortress of Gur, but in a meeting held outside there, Colonel Mustafa declared that since it was more strongly defended than expected, it would be better to proceed straight to Vienna, rather than lose troops besieging it. At the meeting, Ibrahim, the veteran Pasha of Buda, advised more precautionary tactics. In support of his argument, he recounted the fable of a king who placed a pile of gold in the centre of a carpet, then offered it to anyone who could take it without treading on the carpet. The winner was one who rolled up the carpet from the edge until he was able to reach and grab the prize. Likewise, Ibrahim advised rolling up the hostile frontier region before securing control of its fortresses and postponing an attack on the city. Karl Mustafa ignored the advice, and although Gyor was left unconquered, the Turks were able to capture a number of other strategically placed positions as they advanced. In actual fact, there was some good sense in not delaying the march. The Habsburg army, riven by internal differences, had been slow to formulate a defensive strategy and slow to mobilise. Charles of Lorraine, as commander of the Imperial Army in the field, was tasked with trying to slow down the Ottoman advance to give Vienna more time to prepare. But in truth, he did not have enough troops to hurt the overwhelmingly larger Ottoman forces. After playing with the idea of striking a blow at the Turks around the town of Gran, he decided it wiser not to take risks and to keep his army intact. He fought a creditable delaying action up the Danube, but could not stop the Turks reaching Vienna. Panic set in in the Austrian capital in the first days of July, when news arrived of the steady advance of the enemy. The emperor and his court abandoned the city on the 7th of July and retreated to Passau, carrying their treasures with him. Leopold was criticised by some for his decision to flee Vienna, but in fact it made sense. He was not a military man, so best to leave the management of the defences to those better qualified. Both his sons were in their infancy, and he had no close male relatives still alive except for Carlos II of Spain, who was sickly and not expected to live long. If he and his sons were killed or captured by the Turks, the Habsburg dynasty, in effect, would come to an end. Leopold appointed as military commander of the garrison Ernst Stahenberg. He was a straightforward, soldierly type, crude and outspoken, energetic and highly skilled in the complex techniques of siegecraft, the ideal man to organise the defences. He ordered the citizens who remained to build a wooden palisade as a first line of defence and also to level all elevated spots within range of the walls. The city had been provisioned to withstand a long siege, but more food and military supplies were brought in at the last minute. Within a few days of arriving outside the walls of Vienna, the Ottoman army had surrounded the city on all sides. The siege opened with a customary offer of safe conduct if the defenders surrendered the city, but of course giving up the imperial capital was unthinkable. The Ottoman forces quickly built a network of deep trenches, often roofed in timber and earth, which allowed them to approach the walls under cover.
The bombardment began on the 14th of July, although the Turks had not been able to transport with them as many heavy cannon as they would have liked. A successful breach depended most likely on laying mines under the walls, which the Ottomans were highly skilled at. To deal with the mines, the defenders made sorties, in which a group of soldiers rushed out and attempted to destroy as much of the enemy earthworks as possible. The first sorties caught the enemy by surprise, and were quite successful, but as casualties from fighting mounted, the garrison became more defensive. As expected, the siege was a savage fight without quarter given by either side. Throughout August, the Ottomans attacked relentlessly, and after 25 days on the 7th of August, they broke through the palisade, the outer defences. They now attacked the main city walls. Wherever a breach was made, the defenders struggled to push the enemy back and repair fortifications as best they could. Particularly ferocious fighting occurred around the part of the wall called the Lurbel Bastion, where the Turks focused their mines. On the 12th of August, a Turkish mine blasted a huge hole in the earthworks, piling up a mound of earth in the moat. The Turkish assault was again driven off, but with great cost of life for the garrison, which by then had already lost 1,200 men. Meanwhile, dysentery spread through both armies, but was particularly bad for the defenders. From the tower of the church of St Stephen's, it was possible to see across the north back to the Danube, parties of Lorraine's forces or bands of Tartars on their raids. In the far distance, columns of black smoke would show that yet another village or farmhouse had been set on fire by the raiding parties of Tartars. On September the 4th, following another major explosion from a mine, the Turks managed to occupy a ravelin, an outwork of the city's fortifications, and started to pour into a breach in the wall, calling upon Allah and brandishing their weapons. After a two-hour fight with heavy losses, on both sides they were driven back. Nonetheless, the situation of the defenders was critical. Starenberg had barely a third of his original garrison still fit for duty. Then, on the night of September the 7th, after three more days of desperate fighting, Steinberg's distress signals were finally answered by fires from the hills to the west of the city. When the first desperate appeal from Vienna had arrived in mid-July, just as the siege was beginning, Jan Sobieski moved his court southwards from Warsaw to Krakow without displaying a great sense of urgency. But as details of the progress of the siege became known, he worked hard to mobilise a large army. He left Krakow on the 15th of August, and by the end of the month he arrived at Hollebrunn, northeast of Vienna, where he linked up with Charles of Lorraine. Charles had been using a small force to defend Pressburg from attack from the rebel army of Thokolu, as well as harassing the Turkish lines. Together with the rest of the Allied forces from Bavaria, Saxony and elsewhere, Sobieski and Lorraine marched up to the hill of Karlenburg, overlooking Vienna, which they found to their surprise to be unoccupied. From there they looked down on the besieged city, whose walls, intermittently broken by piles of rubble, were surrounded by a maze of mining trenches. 
Kerr, Mustafa, intent on the siege and probably overconfident, had failed to plan in advance for the defence of his troops from such a relief force. His camp was unfortified and lacked observation posts or cavalry patrols. Even when he was aware of the arrival of the relieving army, he made no immediate move to transfer his forces to meet the attack. Before dawn on September the 12th, the Christian Allied army charged down the hill into the besieging army. The ensuing battle with the Turkish forces, caught between the relief force and the well-armed garrison, lasted throughout the day. The Imperial forces were located on the left wing along the Danube, Sobieski's the right, the position of honour according to the military protocol of the day. For the first three or four hours the battle was a series of confused skirmishes that coalesced gradually into a long battle line across the north-western perimeter of the Turkish camp. Shortly after midday the Poles reached the bottom of the hill and fought their way towards the centre of the Turkish army. By the end of the day, the Turkish army was swept aside and realising the hopelessness of the situation, those who had not been slain fled. The Ottoman camp was plundered and Sobieski's men quick to secure the lion's share, including the magnificent embroidered tents of the Ottoman High Command which can still be seen in Vavel Royal Castle in Krakow today. When news of the defeat at Vienna reached the Sultan in Belgrade, he was furious, threatening Kara Mustafa with execution and summoning him to appear before him. Kara Mustafa pleaded that he was ill, and from his winter quarters set about the defence of the Hungarian front. He blamed the debacle on the Pasha of Buda, but the truth was that it was the Grand Vizier who was the most responsible for the devastating defeat of his army. On the 25th of December 1683, while at prayer in the palace of Belgrade, he was interrupted by emissaries from Constantinople, bearing the Sultan's order of dismissal and the silken scarf of execution. Meanwhile, across Christian Europe, there were celebrations of the rescue of Vienna and defeat of the infidel, or what was seen rightly as a stunning victory for the empire. It seemed to Western observers that after centuries of setbacks, the tide was turning in their favour, silencing forever the alarm of the Turkish bells. For the Ottomans, the failure of the siege was certainly a setback, but they had no idea at the time that this was merely the first in a chain of humiliating defeats to come in the following years. I will continue later about the Habsburg fightback against the Ottomans during the 1680s and leading up to the Battle of Zenta of 1697. But there are also quite a few other things going on in Europe at the same time and they're all interconnected. So the next podcast will be about the Glorious Revolution in England of 1688 I'm also going to talk about the Battle of Boyne a couple of years later and the Nine Years' War, 1688-97. to There I will properly introduce King Louis XIV of France, who had become increasingly dominant in the geopolitics of Europe. And that will all lead up to the War of Spanish Succession, 1701-1714, which would involve all the powers of Western Europe. So there's a lot to look forward to in the coming year. 
If you feel you would like to support the show, you can sign up at patreon.com. Patreon.com slash History Europe. For $3, you can gain access to a few bonus episodes and also listen to the regular episodes a week in advance. I will play out today with a piece by the composer Giovanni Palestrina called Adoremos Te Cristo. (laughs) 